stay hungry, stay foolish. As always, this show is brought to you by Zai Boli, transforming the future of financial services with a suite of embedded products and services, enabling businesses to manage multiple payment workflows and move funds with ease. Check out Zai at hellozai.com. Matt, welcome back. Great to be back. It's great to have you back. And today we are going to focus purely on the brain and hate. Something that I have never read about specifically, and you dedicate a whole chapter to this. And although that sounds like not a lot, I wanted to bring our audience a very concise episode that really focuses on this because as we understand ourselves a little bit more, maybe we can start to make tweaks and changes, etc. I'm going to start us off with a quote, two quotes, in fact, one by you, and one by a late, brilliant thinker, writer, EO Wilson, Edward Wilson, who was due onto the show. And unfortunately, he passed away, Matt. And he said once, the real problem of humanity is the following. We have Paleolithic emotions, medieval institutions, and godlike technology. And it is terrifically dangerous, he said, and it is now approaching a point of crisis overall. Now that can refer to many, many different things. But I thought it really co it really corroborated a lot of the stuff that you talk about in this chapter about the Paleolithic emotions and medieval architecture of the brains that we have. And one of the quotes that you have in the book is goes as follows. John lived his life in a certain way, held non prejudiced attitudes. And then one day, he was hit by a car and started to perceive an inner voice that spewed bigoted bile. I thought that was a nice, intriguing way to set you up and tell us what the heck is Aiden talking about here? <laughs> well, um, the first was a fantastic quote, and I wish I'd written it. And it's, it certainly conjures up some some uh, powerful imagery, doesn't it? And I think um, the example of, of John as well in the book that I use, uh, who who unfortunately had a slight brain injury and and that changed his his thought processing for a while um is a is a is a nice way to exemplify how the brain plays a key part in our behavior um but it, it's an ancient part of our of our biological systems in the sense that uh, like much of our of our bodies and our organs um you know they've evolved over hundreds of thousands millions of years um but there are relics of the past still there and there are deep parts of the brain that are still with us that literally haven't really evolved for a very very long time um and they are influencing how we interact with the very modern world um and there's this disjuncture or chasm between parts of our brains, parts of our, 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 our biological systems as they function now, and how they're interacting with the very modern world. And, and so in the book, I, I, I delve into these parts of the brain to try and understand how they're shaping behavior in relation to prejudice and hate in particular. And the case of John is fascinating, because, as I say in the book, he, he uh, um, is, is, you know, considers himself uh, a liberal, he's written for The Guardian, and He's, he's a music journalist um, primarily, but you know he's very kind of uh, uh, left and and uh, um, likes to regard himself in that way. And so when he had this brain injury, um, having been knocked off his bike, 
by a reversing car in London on a busy day where he was going to pick up his kids. Um, you know, he he had this kind of dazed, uh, confused period for a few hours. Um, everything seemed okay. The ambulance folks were like, well, you seem to be all right. Um, if if you have any symptoms in the next few days, just come back and, and, and you know, tell us. Uh, or go to your local hospital. But he thought he was absolutely fine. And in fact, he felt joyous. He, he never felt so happy in his life. And he'd actually suffered with depression for quite some time. And, and the shock of the impact to his brain did something to the to the actual physical nature of his brain. Uh, he didn't know it at that point, but he suffered a, sort of a mild brain injury where the axons in his brain had been severed, essentially. The parts of the brain that connect other parts of the brain together had been stretched so far because of the impact that they'd been either severed or, or damaged. And that meant that certain parts of his front of his brain weren't actually talking as successfully to other parts of his more kind of prehistoric brain, for want of a better phrase. Um, and what that resulted in actually was him having some really deeply dark thoughts um, when he would encounter complete strangers on the street. So he recalled, for example, walking down the street one day, a couple of days after the accident, um, just going to get himself a coffee. And he heard this voice. I can't say it on the podcast because you know, the language he uses is pretty, pretty nasty. Um, but, you know, there's, there's basic, you know, uh, racial slurs, homophobic slurs. Uh, uh, lots of expletives, and he, and he looks around trying to think, well, where the hell did that voice come from? You know, who would say such a horrible thing to you know, a, a person walking by? Didn't see anyone. No one else was reacting on the street, and all of a sudden he was like, well, and he carries on walking, and then again this voice comes out of nowhere, and immediately he's looking around trying to think, well, who is saying that? I mean, and this the disgusting things that they're saying about these people. And all of a sudden, he realizes the voice is in his own head, as he describes it. And in fact, he is delivering these sort of inner tongue lashings to these poor, unsuspecting individuals. He's not verbalizing them, but they are loud and clear in his mind. And he's having these thoughts, and he doesn't seem to be able to control them. He, he can't, they, be, they are unbidden, as he describes it. And he wasn't able to kind of suppress them in the moment. Uh, uh, that would that would kind of reassure him that there was a flashing thought, but that they were permeating his his prefront, prefrontal cortex, if you like, with the sensory part of his brain. And this happened for months, and he was deeply concerned about it, and went to see a counsellor, and eventually got to see a, a, a neurosurgeon, and they confirmed that yes, indeed, you are suffering from a brain injury, and and it, it transpires that um, the the deep parts of his brain, those kind of primeval, primordial parts of his brain that that process things like fear and process things like sense of threat were overtaking the more conscious and sort of executive control parts of the brain, primarily the prefrontal cortex, the, the bit at the front of our brain that, that developed much later in the evolution of human beings. Um, and I was overriding it because it of this damage and this damage meant that the feedback loop that usually results when you get these unbidden kinds of, of of sort of inappropriate very often racist homophobic sexist thoughts is that they were allowed to to run amok in his brain in a sense now it's important to say he never did verbalize this stuff um but he did he did admit to it and wrote about it very eloquently in a in a in a in a news piece um but it's contemporary evidence that the brain plays a vital role in our 
assessment of our surroundings currently, and certainly in terms of how we perceive other people, and how, very importantly, how culture over time and how we where we grew up, uh, what environment we grew up in, the people surrounding us in that period, deeply shapes how our brain functions later in life. And that's really important, I think, that that you, we cannot, as kids, for example, turn off that cultural tap that we're exposed to. You know, I grew up in the 80s. I was subjected to lots of homophobic stuff in the press. And, you, you know, you had the HIV AIDS uh, uh, epidemic. You, you had Thatcher and Section 28 in the UK. Um, you know, I had a lot of kind of homophobic rhetoric coming towards me in the press. And I grew up in a small village in Wales, a, a rugby village. And it was unfortunately at that point in time, very masculine and hence a little bit homophobic, maybe a bit more than a little bit. <laughs> and um, I grew up in that culture. Now, as a gay man now, you'd think that I, I'd be the most liberal uh, uh, um, person in terms of sexual orientation. But as I was growing up, I had a lot of internalized homophobia because my brain had been fed all of this stuff and it fed off it in a way that I couldn't turn off or, or, or even challenge because I didn't have the wherewithal to challenge it. But all that feeding goes into those parts of the brain that are those ancient bits that are designed to keep you alive, to regulate uh, fear and to pinpoint threat. And it, it it's a foundation that stays there. And as you grow up, normally with a well-functioning brain, you do learn to correct those thoughts. You do learn to challenge the information you were fed. And you, on top of that, you layer on sort of rational thinking, if you like, but under extreme circumstances like brain damage, uh, but also things like severe uh, uh, tiredness, uh, uh, being drunk is another one, where the ability of the prefrontal cortex that has that additional layer of more informed uh, thinking uh, is somehow sort of uh, um, disengaged then these these other parts of the brain that were fed these very often deeply racist homophobic uh, bits of information in the past tends to take over for a short while and it's in, it's fascinating i mean and some studies have done have done a lot of uh um looking around the brain using various technologies to try and pinpoint this um but ultimately uh you know we cannot disentangle uh um the influence of the brain from our behavior when it comes to interacting with other people different from us. A couple of things. So for our audience who have been with us for a long time, we had Daniel Amen on the show before and we covered his book that the end of mental illness was the name of the book. And I took a bit of relief from that book as I kind of going, Oh, well, all kind of erratic behavior must be brain damage. And again, rugby, you know, I saw this in rugby myself, I've been concussed a few times. And your behavior changes in that you can become a bit more depressed, you can be emotional, you can become aggressive. We've seen this recently with some players that have so sued their unions actually for uh, depression and for concussions over time. And their marriages have fallen apart from abuse and from actually becoming hyper aggressive. And I'm pretty sure that's the case. But as you say, uh -uh. <laughs> this is not the reason why we have hate. It is a mixture. Yes, it's, it creates a precondition. But then culture steps in. And I thought we'd take the opportunity to do as you so do so well in the book, to kind of go back and go, well, why does this happen? And as you talk about, for example, 
if you think about our origins, and I have a lovely quote here, because you write this so brilliantly, through the experience of seeing our family mauled by animal predators. So just to put it in context here, our houses and our homes, not our houses, our homes pillaged by neighboring tribes, and whole villages wiped out by flash floods, our prehistoric brains, this hardware, learn to recognize threats to personal and group safety. This learned process over millions of years shaped the brain in a way that allowed modern humans to cope with and eventually dominate our environment. Despite the adaptability of our brains, this coping mechanism is only so flexible. I thought we'd share how that ancient hardware still needs an update to the software over time, but it takes a long, long time to change. And uh, it, 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 if we think about how long we've lived in our modern environment, you know, post-industrial civilization, it's a fraction of a time compared to the amount of, uh, of, of history where we, as you, as, you, as you just said in that quote, lived with our natural environment in a much more risky sort of context, if you like. Um, only recently, you know, in the, in the depth of human history, in the expanse of human history, have we been able to dominate over it. And of course, we've not given our brains anywhere near enough time to adapt uh, to this environment in terms of a, an evolutionary adaptation, if you like. Um, you know, we, we'd have to wait a few, well, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of years, if not millions, for our brains to actually change their structures and the way they operate uh, uh, to take account of the new uh, safe environment in which we live, you know, the, the air-conditioned offices and homes, the heated homes, if we can afford them, um, and and everything else. Uh, so we, we're living in the safest time ever. It may not feel like it for lots of, of people, and I can appreciate that, but compared to the expanse of history and where we've come from, you know, we're safer now than we've ever been before. But our brains are still stuck back, you know, hundreds of thousands of years ago, certainly in terms of in that evolutionary sense. And how this pertains to hate is is in two in two particular ways. Uh, two parts of the ancient brain that I talk about in the book are uh, the amygdala, uh, which is like a, a nutty structure. You have two of them either side of the of the of the brain, and you know, it, it it was designed specifically to uh, protect us from external threats like the saber-toothed cat like marauding tribes like natural disasters um and it that's was it, it that's was it, it was it is and was its primary job um it is fantastic at making us react in super fast speed okay so it it's responsible for that fight or flight response that we can feel in those very sort of um, shocking situations that can be anything from seeing a spider or a snake or or seeing or seeing that 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 manila envelope drop on the floor and you immediately think there's a letter from the tax man right so there are lots of different types of fears and anxieties we experience but the amygdala is heavily involved in in processing our reaction to those environments but it's mostly involved in in reacting to those kind of split second uh, uh, moments. So it's it's where you see through the corner of your eye something that looks a bit suspicious, or or there's a there's a flash of something in the distance that catches your eye, and you kind of immediately you fight your whole body becomes kind of engaged, and it's it's actually pretty amazing how 
how we are so responsive to those kinds of stimuli, be it be it auditory, be it um, uh, uh, through through sort of visual, through the eyes, of course, and uh, or, or even smell, um, or even a change in temperature can can interact with with the amygdala. And this fight or flight response, you know, do we engage and 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 stick our ground and attack what's what's threatening us, or do we flee in attempt to save our own lives? Is is key to our survival. And it has been. The reason we survive as a species and we dominate our environment and we and we sort of eradicated other species that came before us um, is because of this incredible alarm system that we've developed. And you know, we we owe our existence in many ways to it. Um, but now it's massively out of date. And so we don't get exposed to those, unless you're Bear grills and you put yourself in harm's way. Um, very few of us are now uh, um, exposed to the kinds of threats that it was designed to, to tackle. So what we tend to find is that it misfires. It's still as sensitive as it ever was, but it misfires in, in our modern environment, which, which means that all of a sudden you're getting these, these alerts to something that is completely benign. Um, and ultimately, uh, it can result in sort of disastrous outcomes, actually. Um, and I talk a few about a few examples in the book for uh, uh, where um, you've got this uh, um, a really depressing situation where in the US and other countries where the, the police are armed, um, officers are more likely to pull the trigger if the suspect is black than if they're if they're white in a very high stake situation so this is where it's um you know very quick decisions to shoot are taking place and you know an evaluation of over 3500 subjects across studies all over the world have shown that um unfortunately uh, white police are more likely to shoot black suspects than white suspects and you know it's and it's not even really that correlated with prejudice it's more to do with what the brain is doing and how the brain reacts to black and white faces on um, black and white people um and that's a whole part of the book i actually sort of delve into in, in quite some detail um and i actually uh have my own brain scanned at one point um to see how to see how my brain reacts to black and white faces, because I wanted to be part of one of these studies to experience what that might feel like. And what is my brain doing? You know, I deeply suspected that, like most other people, my brain would react differently. But I really wanted to find out by engaging in it in a in a sort of scientific way. Um, and, and the other part of the brain I should mention is the insula, which is you know a, a very strange part of the brain that sort of regulates things like disgust and pain. Uh, and perception of pain, but not just yourself, but also sort of the empathetic pain, trying to register pain of others around you. It's the insula is actually a very important part of the brain that allows us to kind of uh, effectively socialize as well and empathize with other people. Um, and what's interesting about the amygdala is that it it can it can react to a variety of things. Um, with sort of very visceral emotions of, of primarily disgust. Um, so, for example, um, it, it was originally kind of designed, uh, again, for want of a better phrase, um, to to keep us alive in, in, and keep us away from, say, foul food and drink. Um, so if you came across uh, some stagnant water and you were very thirsty, you know, 200,000 years ago, you'd 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 sniff the pond and if it smelled bad, you'd get this sort of gut-wrenching reaction, oh, you know, You'd heave and move away. That's your 
that's your insular at work. Same when we now smell off milk. You know, you might go to the fridge, take the cap off. You, Ooh, oh, yeah. That's your insular in action. And it's designed, again, to keep us safe. But again, you know, the environment within which we live doesn't need the insular as much as it used to because we're not constantly our food is much in in the western world especially you know the food is 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 more readily available and fresh and the water is clean um but it can also process disgust um in relation to other things and in particular to other people and to other cultures um, and that has been found to to activate, in particular, in some of these studies that I look at in the in the book. I love that. I, I always think about that idea of the insula double jobbing. It's like it's like evolution's like kind of going, yeah, well, you can handle disgust, but also you make me sick. Literally, you make me sick, and the insula handles that as well. But let's you've intrigued people there, Matt, and. We're, we're going to go deeper into these studies because I what I love about this chapter in particular is the studies and then tying it both to what we talked about yesterday and where you go later on in the book as well. So you mentioned there, for example, the idea of, you know, uh, you and you go through a multitude of these studies, for example, white people seeing a black person, the amygdala is measured then the amygdala, you know, there's a, a turning off of the prefrontal cortex in time. So in times of fear, or as you say, in alcohol, the prefrontal cortex kind of gets a bit turned off, or it gets a bit lazy, or it goes to sleep. And then you're full access to the amygdala, etc. And then it fires even quicker, as you say, like the prefrontal cortex does fire for some people. But then the amygdala is firing up, it's lighting up like a lighthouse, I think were your words. So I would love you to share a couple of those. There was the face prick study as well, as well as the where you're looking at faces. But also then, previous to that, maybe as a foundation for those two studies, was the studies in the 1970s with Henry Tajfel and his findings on, well, even the smallest thing of difference between us, the in-group, and them, the out-group, you know, it's the fundamental attribution bias, we think we're better than we are. And then we put ourselves in situations where we're not so good. And then we actually make excuses for it. But we're all human. Yeah, absolutely. And you've touched on some, some really interesting uh, studies there. I think if I turn to the first one, again, keep staying with the amygdala, because it is it's kind of the bad boy of the brain, I think it gets a really bad rap. But um, it also does very good things. But I think being aware of what our amygdala does and doesn't do can help us kind of at least understand how we react in certain situations and then sort of unpick the process of what the brain's doing. I've certainly felt that way after, you know, researching all this for the book. And, you know, I can feel, you know, literally, I cannot feel parts of my brain activating, but I imagine them activating in certain situations. So one of the sort of uh, very early neuroscience studies that, um, that was that was kind of uh, focused on on prejudice and the brain um, had subjects go into um, sort of MRI, MRI scanners. As an X-ray player, you've probably been in a few MRI scanners yourself. Um, they're not pleasant experiences. They they make a lot of noise. It's very claustrophobic. You're in a very small tube, but they're amazing machines because they can they can measure, um, for example, blood flow in the brain uh, in in at very kind of granular levels. And what that means that they can do is actually pick up when certain parts of the brain activate. Because like a muscle, you know, when you're running or you're lifting weights 
you know, more blood flows to that muscle that you're using, it gets bigger. And, you know, that's how our biology works. Um, the same principle applies to the brain. You know, when you're using a part of the brain more than another, it draws in more blood. And the MRI uh, uh, scanner can, can pick that up. Um, in particular, they call fMRI scanners because they're a bit different from the ones you go into if they, if you're looking at a you know, broken part of the body. Um, so one of these very first studies had the hypothesis that uh, the amygdala would would sort of engage when subjects, white subjects in the study, viewed black versus white faces. That was the hypothesis. The idea being. Um, a lot of folks in the study who tested high for prejudice on a on a, a survey that they had done just before the study um, would have this kind of what they termed a fear or threat response to to black over white faces. Now, what's interesting to to get past that prefrontal cortex regulating uh, process because we all regulate prejudices in our brains um, to get past that that process. They flashed black and white faces in milliseconds, uh, really, really quickly, so quickly that the, the conscious front part of the brain, um, that, that executive control area, didn't register uh, uh, what kind of face it was. And the interesting thing about the amygdala and uh, and its, its, its kind of uh, evolution is that because in risky situations, we have to react very quickly. There's this kind of bypass mechanism that connects the amygdala directly to the visual cortex, which is really bypassing that prefrontal cortex altogether. So it's like a, a one of those toll uh, roads that you can take. You pay you pay the price, but you can get there twice as fast, right? So, and you bypass the slow part. And that's what the amygdala has with the visual cortex, this kind of this kind of uh, uh, speed lane that allows information to travel and bypass all the kind of prefrontal stuff that does all the thinking and dithering and, you know, it should I, shouldn't I kind of stuff. And just to keep you alive, you know, that's that's why that link is there. And this is what that study did. It, it tapped into that sort of superhighway part of the brain between the visual cortex and the amygdala to see how the amygdala reacted to those black and white faces. Um, it was a. It wasn't a, a very sophisticated study, and it's subsequently been criticised for for its design. But what it did show uh, the community at large um, and the field of prejudice and hate studies is that yes, the amygdala does react differently uh, in some people when they view black versus white faces, and very often it, it, in in certain subjects. Uh, very often with who score high on prejudice, for example, in, in various uh, um, surveys and, and experiments, their amygdala would light up like a Christmas tree when they saw a black face versus a white uh, versus a white face. And this was the very first evidence that you know the brain is doing something um, when it sees different types of faces, especially based around race. Since that point in time, there have been you know, many, many other studies have, have corroborated uh, that finding. The amygdala does seem to react differently in some people to different faces. Why is this the case, though, of course, you may ask? And one of those really fascinating studies that I mentioned uh, in the book um, combined uh, sort of this image face uh, uh, exposure in an MRI scanner with auditory stimuli, which included um, playing straight out of Compton, which uh, is is associated, they say in the study, with more black culture than white culture, and then Slipknot, which is more heavy metal. And that, and the study authors argue that that is more associated with white than black uh, people in America. 
That was the assumption. That's the assumptions they made. You know, people may take issue with that. Um, but the interesting thing was when individuals in the scanner um, view black faces and straight out of Compton was playing, their amygdala response was stronger. Whereas when Slipknot was playing, their amygdala response was lower. And that indicated to the authors that this stuff is learned. The brain doesn't come pre-programmed with this reaction. You know, the amygdala doesn't come pre-programmed from birth with this reaction to black and white faces. And these studies, which included the, this kind of variation in music and music type, proved that because, of course, you know, how would the brain ever have ever been exposed to those things uh, uh, before, before uh, you know, adolescence? And ultimately, it was a really interesting study. It's got flaws in it, but it's not perfect. Um, it needs to be replicated to see if we find the same results. But it was really interesting because it raised that question of we must be learning this stuff and it's not pre-programmed. We're not hardwired to react differently to black and white faces or whatever else we're being exposed to. And this comes down to what uh, Robert Sapolsky in his amazing uh, uh, book, Behave, uh, to prepared and learned uh, uh, fears that the amygdala kind of processes. Prepared fears are things that the amygdala does kind of come prepared uh, with uh, from, from a very, very young age. So, for example, our reaction to snakes and spiders, right? This is something that we learn to fear very, very, very quickly. Um, and it's quite hard to remove that fear um, uh, from us. Uh, it's an interesting phenomenon, and it applies to other things too. But ultimately, these are the kinds of fears we pick up very, very quickly. Then there are learned fears. So learned fears are things that we have to understand in context to figure out uh, that they're potentially problematic. So it's a bit like that tax letter that I said that falls on there, or an exam. We don't know what those things are, right, when, we, when we're very, very young. We have to learn through culture what they are. And then we learn the associated fear with them because they're unpleasant things. Um, and the amygdala has both. Now, what this study uh, sort of proved to some extent is that this threat response to, say, black faces over white faces is learned and not prepared. It's something learned through culture, through exposure to culture, or in fact, a lack of exposure to black people when those white people in the scans were growing up. And that's what the evidence continuously shows us, is that if you've not been exposed to lots of different cultures and races and religions while you grew up, you're not in a you're not living in sort of a very multicultural area you're only exposed to people just like you then your brain will be shaped in that way your brain will react in that way and so when you see something very very different from you it that threat reaction will be embedded because of what you're exposed to as a, as a as a kid and studies have confirmed this because they've compared kids who um were exposed to mixed classes in education versus those that were not in terms of race and their amygdalas didn't light up so readily in those in those scanning studies so we find that you know if we mix kids early enough we're not going to see this this unusual threat response in the amygdala now of course the amygdala having a threat response on its own doesn't necessarily mean a person is is racist because i i went to get my own brain scanned and i was part of one of these brain scanning studies uh, in Cardiff University where I where I work 
and indeed, I did have a, a similar threat response uh, to to uh, uh, black faces over white faces. And I spoke to the neuroscientist, and and she, and she was. I said, "Oh my God, does that mean I'm a racist?" You know. So, and then in that moment, I was I was a bit terrified. I think, "Oh my God, am I going to be able to publish this book now?" You know. And I had my friends and family saying to me, "Don't go for the brain scan. What happens if it?" You know. But of course, having an amygdala that that does react in this way doesn't necessarily mean that you you are racist. It means that your brain has learned from from your culture as a young person. I wasn't exposed to many different races when I was growing up. I grew up in the Welsh Valleys. And of course, you know, there was majority white. Um, I think we may have had one Asian kid in my class. Uh, when I went to university in the late 1990s, there wasn't one black student in my class, which is now thinking back remarkable. Um, but that was what I, that, that's the environment I grew up in. So there is no surprise that my amygdala was reacting in that way. But what the neuroscientist told me was that you know, your, your amygdala reacted in that moment, but milliseconds after it lit up like a Christmas tree, your prefrontal cortex put on the brakes because your prefrontal cortex told the amygdala to, amygdala to sort of so, so step down red alert. You know, this isn't actually a threat is what the prefrontal cortex was telling my amygdala. So we had that shortcut information coming in from the eyes right to the amygdala. Then all of a sudden, the prefrontal cortex comes in a few milliseconds later. This is all very, very fast. It was split-second stuff that we're, we're talking about here. And it sort of cancelled red alert, in a sense, because I realized then, using all the information I've gathered since I've grown up, I know full well that that face is not threatening. You know, it, logically speaking, that is not a threat to me. Um, and that's the important thing about understanding how the brain operates, is that we've got these ancient parts that are that are sort of sometimes allowed to run amok, uh, but we have this really incredibly powerful prefrontal cortex that does all the decision-making and, and, and all the logical stuff. Um, and it's it's very powerful at regulating the rest of the brain. And if that's functioning well, and it's running at peak performance, there's no excuse for anyone to be prejudiced or racist uh, or hateful in any, in any which way. Um, so, you know, you can never just say my brain made me do it because ultimately there is no excuse there because we have this incredible prefrontal cortex doing a, a, fan a fantastic job. That point, and we'll come back to the idea of, well, if you're a cop in a black area, a white cop, or you come from a traditionally racist area, you're going to be more trigger happy. And you cover this as well because maybe you're you're not overriding with the prefrontal cortex as well so and and then you talk as well in the book about the salience network which is really important to understand as well that whole aspect of the brain what's important to you what do your friends talk about what's on tv how are you being socialized what groups you're involved in how they talk in the office because all of this for me matt as well reflects how we create in group and out groups in the in the office place, in the workplace as well, because it happens in every aspect of society. There's micro, micro hate and microaggression everywhere in society. And I think by understanding it, A, we can do something about it, we can be part of a solution. And B, maybe we can help younger generations. And that's where I'd love to go next. Because as you talk about in the book, there's a window for our children where they can learn these behaviors. And as you said a moment ago, 
if if for example I, I had a, a guy in my school who's black who was one of my best mates in school and that really helped me you know and I, unbeknownst to me I, I you know we shared a love of music and that's how we bonded but I didn't see color with him and I don't think I, I'd be interested in seeing an fMRI scanner how I how I fare in that but I also thought it was really interesting to bring that right back to even stuff like for me education meditation and you know education for me is so important and that quote that i mentioned in part one about well-fed horses don't rampage if you're well educated and you're not in a fearful environment and you have somewhat your basic needs met your prefrontal cortex is going to you're going to be more in control of that therefore you're not going to fly off the handle and do something rash and crazy and as you speak about in the book and we talked about in part one often tragic as well so there's loads in there and the reason i'm giving loads is please pull on whichever strings you like and go down whichever rabbit hole love listening to you you talking about this stuff strangely enough i love speaking about it i'm not sure why but i I do i just find the whole subject so fascinating but the points about uh, in in groups and out groups, I think that's a really important um, point that that the study of prejudice has has sort of focused on for so many years. And the notion is basically that we were a very groupish species, um, humans operating groups. It's it's an evolutionary trait. Um, we found that, of course, successful living uh, survival was more readily achieved when we cooperated in groups. Uh, effective groups meant that we, our tribe would survive over a, a, a tribe that was not effective at cooperating, a bit like a rugby game in many ways. You know, the better cooperation amongst team members, the more success you're going to get. <clears throat> and this cooperation uh, over millions and millions of years of, of evolution, of course, uh, meant that we, we've become a groupish species. We want to be part of a group. It's something innate in us. Um, and that's, and that's certainly something that, that shapes our experience of life and, uh, how we interact with the world and how we organize as a species. Now, as part of this groupish, as part of this groupishness, um, we have this in-group, out-group dynamic, um, we tend to gravitate towards people that share similar characteristics to us. They can be characteristics uh, uh, of any nature. They can be sex, gender, race, uh, um, sexual orientation. They can also be things like what band you like, what what sports team you like. You know, groups can be formed across multiple dimensions, and this sense of belonging operates in a very similar way, regardless of what that kind of grouping might be. But just being part of a group is is important to us socially, but also, you know, I think in terms of sort of uh, um, sort of emotionally, but also in that in that uh, sense of reward that we get when we engage in in pro-social behaviors. The problem is, is when one group is pitted against another. And I think this tends to happen in situations where certain things like resources, uh, be it money, housing, shelter, become scarce, or our moral worldview or sacred values are at odds or are threatened by another group. Now, this sense of threat, this perception of threat that can fall down those two categories is key to understanding group dynamics. And 
in harmonious times, in times where there is a lot of money sloshing around, where there is very little polarization, um, groups tend to get on quite well together. But when those things are are removed or heightened, um, relationships between groups gets very scarce. We tend to hunker down into our in-group and protect people like us against people who are different from us, whatever that difference might be. And that is an evolutionary trait. You know, that's that's basically how we survived in the past, in those prehistoric times. But it's not how we survive now. In fact, that kind of bunker kind of silo thinking and behavior is actually responsible for the breakdown of the the well-functioning society. And what we must do is fight against our evolutionary trait to, to do that. Um, and actually cooperate with others. If we're going to achieve and, and overcome mass problems like climate change and, and, uh, and mass inequality uh, uh, and and everything else. So, so ultimately, this in-group, out-group dynamic is a fundamental part of what makes us humans, but it can also be a fundamental part of what could damage us as a species further down the line. And the very interesting study that kind of established this existence of these in-groups and out-groups, if you like, or at least empirically tested their existence and how they affect um, sort of who we give our time or resources to, is a study by Henri Tashfell, um, you know, in the in the nineteen sixties, uh, that did a very simple study, sort of experimental design with his students. Um, he called it the minimal group paradigm. The minimal group paradigm. Uh, what that essentially means is that there can be minimal difference differences between groups that will still result in uh, group preference, your own group preference. It doesn't really matter what the difference is, and it doesn't really matter how small it is. It can still result in this this favoring of your in-group over an out-group, whatever separates you. So what he did was have his class of students, and I do this every year with my students when we teach this stuff. You get your class of students. You've got 20, 20 kids in the class. Uh, and you tell them, right, I'm, um, I want you all to estimate how many um, how many beans are in this jar. You've got this jar of beans, and they're looking, and they're looking, okay. And they all guess. Then you, then you tell the students that uh, some of you overestimated the number of beans, and some of you underestimated. Now I'm going to split you by your under and overestimations, and there are two groups. You're the, under, you're the underestimators, you're the overestimators. Now, in reality, I made this up, right? I, I didn't actually count the number of beans in the jar. I didn't actually see who were the over and underestimators. I just split the room in half randomly. But they thought that they were split based on that actual uh, distinction, right? So they they already started to form a group identity with the overestimators and with the underestimators, right? And that, a very minimal difference. This isn't based on race. This isn't based on gender. This isn't based on shoe size. Even you know, this is based on something completely pointless and meaningless. Guessing how many beans are in a jar. Then you, uh, in that experiment, ask them to distribute resources to each other. So you give them a piece of paper and you ask, "There's a finite amount of money, and you have to distribute resources to each individual in the group." But they all know what individual belongs to what group when you're asking them to do this. And nine times out of 10, every time we've done this, uh, when you tot up the allocation of resources, they always, uh, um, well, nine times out of 10 at least, um, allocate more resources to their in-group than their out-group. And, and that 
was one of the very first studies to prove that it doesn't matter what kind of difference there is between groups, you're always going to favor your in-group over your out-group. Now, favoritism of your in-group is not necessarily a terrible thing, okay? It's not, it's 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 a pro-social thing in many regards. You know, the out-group end up suffering because they have less resources, but you're not actually attacking the out-group in any way. You're not actually, you know, waging war with them. So it takes a lot for this in-group preference to to uh, uh, turn into anything sort of nefarious in regards to the outgroup. But under the right set of conditions, and I call these accelerants in the book, under the right set of conditions, if things fall into line, all of a sudden this in-group preference turns into this sort of outgroup derogation. Uh, and that's where we start to see the formation of prejudice, name-calling, ridiculing, the use of slurs to describe the outgroup. And all of a sudden, all you need is a, a politician or two or a senior leader to start scapegoating the outgroup for the ills that the in-group are feeling to then tap into this kind of evolutionary preference for groupishness and then weaponize it in a way that that will make them win the election by demonizing an outgroup and saying that they can do something about them. You know, so so there's this there's always this kind of um need for additional things to happen as i say i call them accelerants in in the book before our human nature can be twisted and turned into something really dark and i think that's where i i i kind of get my positivity from i think is that naturally speaking <laughs> we are a positive race right we are we are we find it very hard to be mean to other people if there aren't uh, sort of conducive conditions to that, we uh, I say in I say in the book, for example, that in World War II, um, uh, an interesting study found that um, the majority of of soldiers, you know, and this is conscription, you know, so we saw a lot of a lot of the soldiers were just kids that worked on farms and worked in shops, you know, uh, the majority of them either never shot their rifles or if they did shoot, they deliberately missed their targets because they didn't want to kill the enemy. We don't have it in us to kill other people. It's not something natural. But once, of course, the generals found out this shocking statistic, um, which wasn't great for wartime, as you can imagine, you're trying to win a war. Um, they invested a serious amount of money in, in sort of this dark psychology stuff, whereby they then focused exclusively uh, on trying to turn the soldiers into killing machines by dehumanizing the enemy, for example, for instilling this sense of a disinhibition and de-individuation that I talk about in the book. So it sort of divests them of responsibility of killing another human by saying, if you don't kill the other human, they're going to kill you and your friends. You know, uh, and this notion of dehumanization, saying that you know, the enemy are cockroaches, they're vermin, they're rats, you know, they don't deserve your respect. And, you know, through this kind of psychological kind of brainwashing, um, we, we went from you know, very few soldiers actually shooting their rifles in the Second World War and hitting their targets. To over ninety percent uh, of soldiers killing people in the Vietnam War, and you know, and, and shooting their, their their weapons at human targets, and that's the success of of the the psychology of this stuff. And uh, it's frightening how we can hack the brain to do that, and and we can hack the the kind of rather usually benign sort of facets of our uh, evolved machinery to to turn someone into a killing machine, you know, and that it, it sounds dramatic, but, but, you know, this is, this has been proven in, in a lot of scientific work 
and we've seen it practically happen in in wartime um and to a lesser extent we can also see this kind of weaponization of our fears and how our brain works in terms of groupishness by nefarious politicians around the world we're seeing it now in italy for example um we've seen it around brexit in the uk uh we've seen it in the us with trump and there are other parts of the world that that see these these populist leaders um tap into these kinds of ingrained fears uh over sort of they're laid on top of our evolved machinery and uh whether or not they know they they know they're doing it with the precise mechanics they may have not read my book so maybe they don't but maybe if they read my book they'd realize that's what we've been doing. I didn't realize we were doing that. But yeah, the results are the same. Uh, and that's quite, quite terrifying. Um, and you're right, in terms of in terms of young people and and where the solution for some of this lies, it is in the youth and it is in it is in getting to to people early and trying to uh you know enrich their lived experience with as much diversity that as possible. Um I know it's not practically possible in some parts of the world. You know, I've got a, a best friend who's a head teacher in West Wales, and he says, "Matt, I read your book. I'm really fascinated by everything uh, that you kind of mention in it." But he said, "You know, my school is majority white. We may have a couple of kids that are of Asian heritage, but he said, how do I ensure that my kids?" are mixed with with kids from other cultures so their amygdalas don't start you know acting up and uh and and then you know those things aren't then um taken advantage of in the future by nefarious politicians and the internet and algorithms and all this stuff that i write about and i said well it's a tough problem yeah you you know you're not going to be bussing in kids from other parts of the country just to get that ethnic mix in the school it's just practically not possible but i did say that you know there are other things you can do for example like decolonizing the curriculum uh getting more uh works that the kids are exposed to in in literature um uh, uh written by minority individuals you know exposing them to works of science and art that aren't written just by old white men for a start you know and a lot of what we're taught in school is is stuff written by old white men <laughs> and uh even most of the you know in my in, in the stuff i teach in universities sociology and criminology it's all old white men so we're actively now trying to include works from other parts of of the world um and and works from from individuals who uh, uh occupy different identities you know and i think that's really powerful and telling those stories that uh talk about the lived experience of other people different from the kids in the class is so important to to start to develop that exposure but also the empathy that they can build up towards people that might be a bit different from them it's not as good as um it's not as good as actually mixing with someone different you know from you in in some way uh but it's 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 uh you know, it's it it has a good effect, nonetheless. It 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 has some effect, um, but ultimately, yeah, kids young and early, um, influencing them, changing their minds, or at least showing their minds don't go don't go too far down a certain path, is key to changing society. I mean, it, it does, that wouldn't come surprise to any listener, of course. I mean, I think everyone understands that. And you know, I look at my nieces and nephews now who are 10, 11, uh, and, and under. And I can even see, I can see it happening to them. You know, I'm a gay man married to my husband. We turn up to my brothers and sisters' house, um, and they see us together in a loving relationship. 
and they don't even question us being together. Um, it's just so natural for them to be exposed to that. And okay, fair enough. They're growing up and they begin to ask questions, but the, our responses are, well, me and Dean are together because we love each other and it's fine. We're married. And they're like, oh, okay, fine. You know, because they have, they've not been fed any of the stuff that I was fed as a kid, which was deeply homophobic stuff that was being printed in, you know, the popular press at the time. You know, they're going to grow up in, with, with a brain that doesn't even register. Uh, same-sex interactions as anything other than normal. And I think that's just an amazing thing to witness in this day and age. And I'm really excited about the future because each gener- as each generation, you know, progresses uh, and things hopefully continue to become more uh, equal and inclusive, we'll see a better society and a drop in prejudice and a drop in hate crime. But that said, you know, looking around the world as we see it right now with polarization increasing and and as I mentioned in in the previous uh, uh, previous episode, the uh, you know, the power of algorithms uh, and what engagement algorithms are doing to not only our social media feeds but also to our brains, um, I, I am still concerned about the fragility of the progress that we have made to date. Well said, well said. And a couple of things. I last one for you really today is um, I I was thinking about that and and I think about that a lot with my kids and how like you've witnessed they 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 don't really see color or they they it's great it's really 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 positive but still i remind them of things you know i i've told them about how history has been whitewashed essentially and yes man washed as well and you know i i tell them you know in all likelihood jesus was black you know if jesus existed <laughs> he or she was black and there's a great story i don't know if you ever heard of alan watts the british philosopher i wrote about this before that uh, he he was telling a story about an astronaut who on returning from space was asked by in jokingly by a journalist did you see god and the journalist goes yes and she's black yes <laughs> and i was like yes. that yeah. that's exactly the point you need to yeah. interrupt your bias and we had a great episode recently with joan c williams on our book bias interrupted and mm. we're not broken but we can do things to interrupt the bias and i really think that's what yeah. your your book really really does and i thought we'd share one more story and this is where you talk about well even if you become somewhat colorblind, there's still a hierarchy. And this is, for example, where the studies where they brought in badges to differ person from person A or team A to team B. And then actually you bring it on and kind of go, well, this idea of in the absence of a subordinate group, you refer to other things for looking for the in-group, out-group. And this is why and this is a great tip because many people who work for charities listen to the show so maybe we'll share this as a little final nugget and a real nugget of knowledge for those groups that work in charities it's a really powerful phenomenon actually and and you're right there is a hierarchy at work when it comes to our, our perception of groups and the ordering of groups so for example some studies found that um, and some of the brain scanning studies found that when um we mixed race with uh, uh a superordinate group, for example, like a football team that the the people in the scanners were fans of, all of a sudden the race effect disappeared. And it was like more to do with the fact that it was the opposing sports team 
was was way more important. That's when their amygdalas lit up like a Christmas tree. So what that showed us was that yes, when when we're in certain contexts and we live in contexts, right? We're living, we don't live in a vacuum. We we live in contexts that's shaped by everything around us, including sport. And you know, when when a, a group comes along or a person belongs to a group that means more to us than say their race, all of a sudden all those all those prejudices and the way the brain reacts can change completely. And we see this happen a lot with advertising. So, so for example, you mentioned charities that might be listening in, or folks that work for charities. Now, a lot of the work that goes on when they're trying to to get us to donate to an appeal, say to a country where uh, um, the folks in that country are different, a different color, different race or ethnicity from us, uh, the, the country they're trying to get folks to donate money from. Um, they appeal to that superordinate group instead of appealing to you know these these people are impoverished they're dying it's like you know this this uh um, mother has a child that that is dying and all of a sudden the the superordinate group is parent and motherhood all of a sudden they connect with that and all of a sudden the fact that the people on the screen that you're looking at are a different race from you falls away and becomes less meaningful uh, and sometimes irrelevant. And the dominant group that you're thinking of is that, oh my God, she's just a mother like me. And if I, if my kid was suffering in that way, I would definitely be, you know, and you empathize. And that empathy, the ability to what they call, I call it in a book, uh, and they call it in psychology, sort of uh, mentalizing and theory of mind. When you're able to put yourself in the shoes of others and experience the potential, or imagine the potential pain that they're feeling, and you're doing that because you think you're in the same group as them, motherhood in this case, you're far more likely to give money and you're far more likely to lend help. And I think that's a really powerful a really powerful signal. And I also talk about in the book uh, the power of sport and the power of in-group, out-group, and this kind of this cross-categorization that is also called in psychology with with uh, black players in the Premier League in the UK. And for example, there was this amazing study done out of Stanford where they found that in the in in 2017, in the midst of you know the the year of terror, they called it in the UK when we had the, those three those terror attacks, London uh, Bridge, uh, uh, we also had sort of Manchester Arena. You know, there was a lot of anti-Muslim sentiment being expressed online in the UK and and being expressed on the streets of the UK. Um, we were measuring that in our lab, actually. It was like a really bad year for anti-Muslim hatred. But when Mo Salah signed up to Liverpool Football Club that year, all of a sudden, anti-Muslim sentiment on social media and on the streets in Merseyside dropped, while across the rest of the country, they, they remained high. And it was an isolated effect to Liverpool football fans and, and Merseyside as an area. And what the study found was that because Mo Salah was performing so incredibly well, he, I think he won the Golden Boot and he, he got loads of accolades that year. He was a top goal, uh, goal um, top goal scoring player. Uh, he had done amazing things for Liverpool Football Club. The players stopped seeing him as Muslim in a sense and saw him as a part of this superordinate group, this, this, this Liverpool football group all of a sudden. But what was really fascinating was that they began to look upon Islam as a positive thing. In fact, they began to chant around the stands of Anfield praise for Islam. And there are even YouTube videos of, of Liverpool football fans uh, uh, singing these chants in pubs in Merseyside. And it was an amazing phenomenon. But what it proved, I think, 
was that you know you can overcome pre-existing prejudices by promoting very positive stereotypes um, of folks that are usually subject to very negative stereotypes. But the problem with this solution is we can't expect our football f- players, our rugby players, our sports stars to to take to take this problem on as their own and to change minds. We have to rely on other other mechanisms also you know it's education it's the state it's 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 our communities and us as well but it, how interesting that the positive portrayal of a player and their positive performance on the pitch can actually turn around uh levels of hate online and offline while all around them all around the country they're inflated because of this this year of terror that we had it's just such a powerful example of how a whole community can be changed by by one sort of one player in that context. And imagine if we had lots of Mo Salahs around the country. I bet every team would love a Mo Salah, right? Um, but ultimately, you know, it's it's just such a such a powerful example of how something like sport can can change minds for the better. Beautiful. I think that's such a beautiful way to finish and a positive note because I I do like the book is filled with harrowing case studies um, and as you told me off air very difficult to write those because you have to go and research them and you know I'm high empathy like you I, I predict my insula was probably going overload when I read them and really felt sick reading some of the studies and the case studies but um, Matt I thought where can people find you where can they reach out and find you and find out more about your work obviously the book and by the way the book is on special on kindle get it while you can get yourself a copy i mentioned that to many people in my network it's really well worth the read not just about the brain and understanding how the brain works and how we have prejudice and how to overcome bias but also i do think it can affect us in ways we probably don't even realize and we can all make a bit of a difference but where can people find you matt yeah, so if they want to check out the latest work that we're doing, um, I run something called Hate Lab um, that's based out of Cardiff University. And we have a website called hatelab.net. So if uh, if folks wanted to keep up to date with the latest research that we're doing, and we're actually doing quite a lot of, of research on hate targeting um, sort of sportsmen and women, uh, um, uh, they can. We've got the upcoming World Cup, of course, which we'll be monitoring. Uh, they can They can check out our work there. I have this practice of wearing a pin and it gets me in the zone every day to prime myself speaking to the brain. My pin today, you probably can't see it here, I'm taking it off, is um, all men are cremated equal. I thought that was absolutely perfect for this book. Author of The Science of Hate, How Prejudice Becomes Hate and What We Can Do to Stop It, Professor Matthew Williams, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much. Remarkable, harrowing, Difficult to listen to a lot of this content, but it's brought to you by Zai boldly transforming the future financial services with a suite of embedded products and services, enabling businesses to manage multiple payment workflows and move funds with ease. You can find Zai at hellozai.com. See you very soon.